You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. So this semester, uh, we covered the I Am series, and it's not hard for you to connect that back to the story of Moses, that he dealt with identity. And uh, in Exodus 3, he was asking questions about his own identity, who he, who he was that God would call him to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. And then Moses asked how he would tell who sent him, who is God, and the God who revealed himself to Moses revealed himself to us in human flesh. And across the book of John, we get these seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. This week, we're in worship because he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And so the overarching theme in front of us this semester has been rest. And with Matthew 11 making its own kind of I am statement this morning, which we sang, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and humble of heart. As ready to enter rest is to know God and to see Jesus more clearly. So many of you shared about what rest week meant to you and how it spoke to you. How scripture spoke to you clearly, those of you that were on set apart retreat. And how you practiced rest on all campus retreat. This has been a semester for that discipline and that orientation to life uh, to sink deeper in us. Our passage today is from the Gospel of Matthew. And the setting was Caesarea Philippi, which was super significant for the two questions that Jesus brought to the class that day. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say I am? And so I'm going to ask you a question and see if it pulls up a memory for you. When was the last time that you were surprised in a deep way? When was the last time you were surprised and you sensed that you were loved and you felt immensely cared for through that gesture and that surprise? So I have a story, and it requires a little bit of a pre-story. First, Richard. Richard was uh, Mr. Everything. He like, played the guitar and he preached. He had this smile that meant every girl in our campus ministry was friends with him. Richard was a freshman and I was a senior. We went to Haiti together for two weeks and we experienced an amazing time in Haiti. We were in a little community called Laagon outside Port-au-Prince. Next pre-story is my friend Dale. Dale was on our Haiti mission team also. And 
we were all in the same campus ministry. Dale and I happened to be fraternity brothers also. So we had lived together for two years. And uh, when we came back from Haiti, I needed a place to live. Dale had an extra room in his trailer house. So I moved in that summer. And Richard and Dale were both praying for me at the end of that summer whenever I made a decision to walk out of law school to go be a youth pastor. Because who wouldn't like, walk out of law school to go be a youth pastor? That's what happened that summer. And I was in my early 20s, so fast forward to this moment after the priest story, and I was on the f this four-day retreat on a church camp. Uh, we had this worship service during the camp, and suddenly in the middle of this worship service, there was this crowd of people. There were about 60 or 70 of us on the retreat, and this, and this crowd of people kind of just showed up for about 10 minutes in the middle of our singing and worship, and I looked up and I saw Richard and Dale. And this was one of those moments where you couldn't go talk to who you saw. And you couldn't give a hug and you couldn't have a conversation with who you saw. I only saw them for 10 minutes and they were gone. And everybody on this retreat looked and saw someone in that crowd that they knew. And each one of us knew that who we were looking at paid a price to be there. And it cost them something. I knew that Richard and Dale drove six hours round trip so I could see them for 10 minutes and see their faces for 10 minutes. It was such a powerful moment of love with skin on. Have you been surprised in that way? Like when people will one day drive to your wedding or faithful class, like people will one day drive to your graduation in one month. It may be like people will one day show up when there is a hood placed on you and you're a PhD. Because it's a question of knowing what sacrifice is. When was the last time you were surprised? Because someone paid a cost that was more than you could imagine. Our scripture that Jenna read this morning was from Matthew 16. There's this turning that is taking place in that chapter. Jesus had withheld revealing himself fully as the Messiah. He had not quite practiced full disclosure with the disciples until right now. And so in this turning point, he is with his inner circle. And he's telling them that the trajectory of his ministry is shifting. It's the turn toward the cross. Last Monday when we were in chapel, and Tish Harrison Warren shared from the passage at the end of Matthew chapter 16. And she spoke to us so directly about the cruciform life, the life of suffering and sacrifice. And this is the moment in this chapter where Jesus' path is shifting from healings and miracles towards the atonement of the cross. So the setting of this conversation was unique. It was Caesarea Philippi. 
It was 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee from where Jesus and the disciples had spent the majority of their time. Jen and I, we, we stood in Caesarea Philippi about 15 years ago. We were, we were there on a trip touring Israel with our church, and it was fascinating because every place that you stand in Israel, you get to connect to where Jesus stood and to where his life unfolded. Suddenly they're away from their everyday context. Since it was a Gentile city and they were in the northern boundary of Israel, some have said maybe Jesus chose this spot because of his mission, including the Gentiles, that he was going to say, go into all the world. That in this spot where they were looking was utter diversity. It was also a center for idol worship. The earlier name of this spot was Pangaeus, in honor of the pagan god Pan, the goat god. Herod the Great built a temple there for worshiping Caesar, and then Herod's son, Philip, changed the name of the city to Caesarea in the emperor's honor. So this context is huge in setting the stage for Jesus' question. He scripted the setting. The contrast couldn't have been stronger for him to ask these questions. Who do people say the Son of Man is? So the first question, it might hit you. This is a great way to lead a small group. You kind of ask the question generically, right? Who do other people say I am? So great safe opening. Peter is going to be his extroverted self ready with the answer. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And you most likely, all of us that have come from a wide array of backgrounds, maybe, maybe you made your confession at a camp. Maybe you made your confession at a church altar. But Peter made his confession in the middle of the world, in the middle where there was every other option around him. As we go through this passage, I'm going to ask you to consider four characteristics of Peter's confession. The first one, that Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah in front of every other option. As the disciples stood on a pagan hillside, there were multiple paths to salvation in front of them. And in the face of every other option, Peter confessed Jesus was the singular Messiah, the one way to God. In the middle of all the options in the world, he confessed that Jesus was the way. The second question, it wasn't in third person. Jesus was direct and personal. He said, who do you say I am? And Peter's answer was the most distinct description of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, you are the Messiah, 
this Hebrew word that we're given for the anointed one, the chosen one, the promised deliverer of the Jewish people, and the son of the living God. The son of God was already viewed as this appropriate title for the Davidic line. And since Jesus was going to become the ultimate ruler in the lineage of King David, the Son of God was appropriate. The disciples were sitting in this place where the gods being worshipped were dead. And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Ten words that most radically alter one life. Peter's confession became the most complete identification of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Peter's response in Caesarea Philippi has had at least two very prevalent interpretations across the centuries. The first one, interpreting this verse to mean that Jesus is building his church on Peter with Peter being the first head of the church is a Roman Catholic interpretation. The Roman Catholic view is that, that Jesus was authorizing Peter to be the first bishop, the first head of the church. The, the second interpretation, many Protestants actually don't know clearly the Protestant interpretation. Peter's name since it meant rock, there's kind of this pun of sorts on Jesus' name. Referencing Peter as a rock, while Jesus was also referencing a different rock. So Protestants interpret Jesus as referring to Peter's confession. Jesus said, you are Peter. And the rock of your confession, on that rock, I will build my church. Peter himself's not the rock. The confession is the rock. Everyone who makes this confession establishes their life on a rock and becomes grafted in to the church. And so this imagery plays out across the New Testament in places like 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. You also are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And the living stones are believers who have confessed that Jesus is the Christ. This second characteristic of Peter's confession was filled with faith. Peter trusted that Jesus was the Messiah. Even before his death and burial and resurrection, even before Messiahship was fulfilled, Peter put his trust in the fullness of who Christ was. He didn't know the complete story of what cost the Messiah would face, but he trusted that Jesus was the one, that the mission of God would be fulfilled through him. 
When I stood on that spot in Caesarea Philippi, I point like it's right behind me, that spot right there. I tried to imagine what the disciples were grasping on that day they were with Christ. That the Savior of the universe was with them. Peter and the 11 others were looking at the Messiah. They had been walking with him. And yet, in all that they knew and all that they saw, it was going to cost Jesus more than they knew or more than they could imagine. Have you dealt with this question in light of that? A sacrifice greater than you could imagine. It's not the question of where do you go to church. It's not a question of did you get an A on your NT exam. Are your parents Christians? His question is clear. Who do you say I am? And his question was plural. It was not who do other people say. His question was who do all of you say I am? In Kentucky, we say all y'all. Who do all y'all say I am? And maybe today's the day that you hear this question with more clarity than you have before. What if answering it for yourself is the most important question of your existence? No one else can answer it for you. Not running from this question would be the wisest decision you ever made. It may require dealing with hurts and doubts It may require dealing with what the recovery community calls hang-ups, but no one else can do the work for you. We bring our questions into the presence of Jesus, and we bring all of who we are into that spot and then respond. Back to Peter. He was like a rock when he was confessing who Christ was. And maybe Peter was filled with so much faith that was a little zealous that it could get him in trouble because a hot second after his confession, in the very next passage, he was a stumbling block. You could say that he was resisting the meaning of the confession he just made. Jesus spoke about his calling to the cross And Peter looked at Jesus and said, never. Peter was telling Jesus the Messiah was mistaken about his own identity, that he was not meant to be crucified. What if your plan or my plan to save the world actually doesn't match up with God's plan? The third quality of Peter's confession is what you could call the dark side of confession. The side of confession that underestimates personal failure. Peter underestimated that he would fall on his face so quickly after he made the confession. The dark side of confession underestimates to what extent God would go 
for redemption. Peter could confess the Messiah, but he didn't know the cost of being the Messiah. Peter was experiencing this in live action. We get a different benefit. And in that very moment, Jesus expressed to Peter that the son of the living God would go to an extreme that Peter could not imagine in order for Messiahship to be fulfilled. And so, of course, there's this invitation for Peter to take up the cross. But how can you do that until you've encountered Jesus first? The magnitude of sacrificial love that is unfolding, that his life and his death and his resurrection was the greatest expression of love and that there couldn't be a Messiah until it was fully expressed. And if you get this, then you can consider taking up the cross and following. Because Jesus went to an extent that was greater than you and I have imagined. It's like Richard and Dale, that sacrificial love is sacrifice. So the dark side of confession is the side that says, you are the Messiah, until I misunderstand what that means. Until the claims that he is going to the cross means that you also would have to take up a cross. So the dark side of confession is this. Your confession costs Christ more than you could imagine. And it's going to cost you more than you imagined it was going to cost. So the passage closes with Jesus speaking identity to the church. That the gates of Hades can't overcome it. That the gates, this defensive barrier, they will not overcome the confession of those who trust Jesus. In the I Am series this semester, the Gospel of John has revealed who Jesus said he is. The Gospel of Matthew turns the question to us. Who do you say he is? Is the confession that you've made a lived confession? The fourth characteristic of Peter's confession is that it was a confession that didn't quit. Peter was rebuked by Jesus for misunderstanding that the cross was built into him being the Messiah. You know, as we go through the movements of Holy Week, Peter would fail Jesus again with three denials. And yet, Peter would stand on the shore with the resurrected Jesus, and he would hear the words, feed my sheep. Peter made a confession 
that didn't quit. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus said, the gates of Hades will not overcome the church. The forces of hell will not overcome the confession that you have made. Is your confession a living stone? Even when you've underestimated the cost, do you have a confession that doesn't quit? Andrew Peterson wrote a song called The Good Confession. And there's these simple words in that song that you may need today. Every breath I breathe, he is saving me. Every breath I breathe, he is saving me. A confession that is good, that doesn't quit, is a confession with a deep awareness that he is saving you. Actively, relentlessly, with faith, at a time that you underestimated, and in the face of every other option. He is at work through the confession that we make.